We want to invite a special guest to come and light our candle this week for Advent. If he can make his way up here, it may take him a moment. Let's welcome our dear brother, Ramon. Uh, so glad to be here with you. And I was asked to say a couple words about joy. And um, that joy for me, it's our ability to feel and to see the life beyond the things that we have. In Russian language, um, the word happiness, счастье, it sounds pretty close to the count, считать. And very often I think we messed up happiness and the joy. It's good when we have something and we can count this. It's good that I can stay here today. It's good that I have friends that who cares about me. And I mean, we have a lot of things that to be grateful for right now, right here. And we can count and the list can be really long. But when we come to the point of the joy, I think it's a little bit bigger than the things that we have. I encourage you sometime go to online and to find the, to find the prayers of the Jews in the concentrated camps when they ask, uh, uh, I mean, they're full of joy. The joy is something that you can, ha can have even in the concentration camp when you don't have anything that you can count. And maybe you can be in the really um, bad circumstances. And I think this is the, when we're talking about Jesus uh, and his birth, I think he showed us the way and bring the road of joy in our human beings' nature. And this is why I think the Christmas is not about only the things that he gave us, but it's, it's something deeper. It's our ability to see that the joy is something that deeper, and it's our ability to see that the real life and the real joy is rooted somewhere deeper that we really can feel it, really we can talk about it. It's the gift of God, it's the gift of Jesus, of course. And this light today, let's remind us about this joy, that really the gift, it's not something that we can bring to, to ourselves, it's, it's not something that if we will have more things, we will have more joy or something like that. It's the gift, and if we are ready to receive this gift today, right now, I think we will be full of joy, and it's not connected directly with the circumstances in which we are right now. And let's just uh, light the candle and just pray together. Let's pray. I will pray in Russian. Отец, спасибо тебе за то, что сегодня мы можем стоять перед тобой. за радость быть в Твоем присутствии, Господь, за то, что сегодня то, кто Ты есть, больше, чем то, что у нас есть, Господь. Спасибо Тебе, что в нашей жизни нет ничего такого, чтобы не было даром от Тебя. Благодарю Тебя за каждого, кто сидит здесь сегодня, за то, что я могу стоять здесь. Прости меня грешного и прости нас, что часто мы полагаем нашу радость в чем-то внешнем, но не внутреннем. Благодарим Тебя во имя Твоей любви. Молимся Тебе во имя Иисуса. Аминь. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, in just a few moments, I'm going to show you a picture. And kiddos, I think you might be able to help me. Maybe not with this microphone cord. Well, good evening and welcome to the Neighborhood Church. Thank you, my dear brother, for reminding us that joy is not just what we have or our circumstances. It's something deeper than that. 
This evening we are going to talk about joy, which is the third week of the season of Advent. Advent, of course, is the season of waiting, and no one likes to wait, whether it's for Santa or presents or something as big as Jesus and his second Advent or arrival. No one likes to wait. But waiting is part of our formation. It's part of being the people of God. In Advent, they look back to the time when they were waiting for the promised king, the king that we've sang about. And it's also the day that we look forward to his second Advent as well. So this evening, we're looking at joy. And before we do that, I want to show you a picture. He's going to help us understand a little bit about joy. Who is it? The Grinch. I know that Nora knows who the Grinch is. She loves the Grinch. And tell me about what the Grinch is up to. What is he trying to do, Nora? He's trying to steal presents. He's trying to steal decorations. He's trying to steal treats. He's trying to steal all of this because he doesn't really like Christmas. Oh, what did you just say? No one really knows why the Grinch doesn't like Christmas or the Who's that love Christmas. But Nora just hit the nail on the head. Some think that his shoes are too tight. Others believe that his heart is what? Yes. Do we see this x-ray of the Grinch's heart here? It's just too small. And maybe that's why he's so mean to the Who's, and that's why he wants to steal Christmas. So if you're familiar with the classic story from Dr. Seuss or the 8 billion new versions of the cartoon, what you're aware of is that he steals all these things, he steals all this stuff, just like Ramon was talking about, and while he thought that it would steal their happiness... They find a joy that's deeper than the stuff that they hang around the fireplace or under the Christmas tree. What they find as he's about to throw all of this stuff off of the mountain, he starts to listen for what he expects will be crying from the Who's. Do you remember this story now? But what does he hear instead? Singing. And it's this joy that he hears from the who's, that changes him. It changes him in what kind of way, kiddos? Okay, Emma knows. Knox, you know. Sydney, are you familiar with the Grinch? What happens to his heart? It grows. Now look at this x-ray. This is a scientific medical x-ray that shows that his heart did expand and it got three times larger. And because his heart was transformed, what does his face look like now? Happy but hilarious is what they say. <laughs> he turned his frown upside down and all of this that changed him was the joy from a group of people that realized that joy is deeper than happiness, that joy is deeper than the stuff we have or the circumstances around us. Tonight, we're looking at joy, and we're going to do so in such a way where we're going to unpack at least five big ideas about joy, but we're going to dance around it in metaphors and pictures and ideas and a story that might be familiar with you that 
is an explosion of joy that I believe transformed some men's hearts and it changed their whole lives. And they realized that there's something beyond the surface. There's something deeper going on. So with all of these ideas about joy, you might be frustrated that you won't get a precise definition of joy. But the thing about joy is it's something that's more caught rather than taught. So we're going to look at the story in Luke chapter 2 of the shepherds. And we're going to see how this explosion of joy transforms them. It's like a defibrillator, shocking their heart, waking them up, and getting them in tune and in touch with the deep note that's been playing and resonant in all of creation. Why? Because God, who's the most joyful being in the universe, is playing it all around us. And for a moment, one evening... A group of men got this explosion of joy, and it changed their hearts. Our first big idea before we get to Luke chapter 2 may be this. Joy expands our hearts. And maybe none of you are furry, green, Dr. Seuss creations, but joy does this. It expands our hearts. What joy does is it allows us to grow in our capacity to receive grace upon grace. It's like this receptacle that gets stretched open when you encounter something that shocks you awake and puts you into contact with the deeper, more resonant notes than what we can find in our surface level happiness or stuff. Joy expands our hearts and it cracks open ourselves, our very lives, to receive the good things that God wants to give to us. If I asked you to list the characteristics of God, would joy be in your top 10? Several years ago, Pastor Bud and I went to a conference for Ecclesia, the relational network that we're a part of as a church, and they had an author as their keynote speaker, his name was James Brian Smith. Many of you are familiar with his work in The Good and Beautiful God, The Good and Beautiful Life, The Good and Beautiful Community. We've done this as a church together in our spiritual formation classes. But he said a question that I'm still recovering from, and it's this. What if we allowed ourselves to believe that God is actually the most joyful being in the universe? I think it would transform a lot of Grinches out there, and it would expand our hearts because we've got put into contact with the fact that maybe divinity is not just with us, but he's actually for us. He's not just for us. As we read earlier in Zephaniah, he might even be rejoicing over us. If joy isn't at the top of your list of characteristics of God, could you dare to believe that he's the most joyful being in the universe? Could you dare to believe that even now in this moment, as we're singing, O Holy Night, and angels we have heard on high, that God is in our midst rejoicing over us and with us? This, I wonder, might just expand our hearts and change our perception. Joy wakes us up to the beauty of the world and the giver and creator of this world, the one behind it all. So I know I said we're getting to Luke chapter 2, but I still want to whittle this down and let us really marinate in this joy that's deeper than emotion, that's deeper than happiness. So let me give you a quick word about joy, and then we're going to get into our other big ideas in our story this evening. 
I can say at least three other things. Joy is a fruit grown out of our relationship with God. If you are not by nature a joyful, happy person, fear not. It ain't all up to you to drum up joy on yourself. The idea that joy is a fruit of the Spirit is something that I think is often misunderstood. Because Christians in our day and age would much rather you be happy than joyful. But joy is a fruit grown out of our relationship with God who's the most joyful being in the universe. You can see Galatians 5.22. You can see Romans 15.13 where it says, May God fill you with joy. If you're running low on joy, would you ask God, would I be open, would you expand my heart this season to experience more and more joy? The second thing, and this is what we've been orbiting around with Ramon and I, Joy is deep enough that it's not drowned out by sorrow. If you imagine that joy is a person and you walk up to him and say, here's all the data, here's all the evidence, look around you. We've got people that aren't even here in our midst right now because they're in the hospital or they're sick. What do you say to this, joy? What do you say to this when I don't have enough, when I don't have a job, when I don't have all of these things? Well, you say, well, joy is deeper than circumstance. Joy says, at least I have life and breath. Joy is deep enough that it's not drowned out by sorrow. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, says it's sorrow mingled with joy. And then Paul can write in Philippians, from a prison cell, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Joy is what keeps them singing in concentration camps or Roman jails. And then finally, I want to tell you before we really get into it that joy is the destination. If God is the most joyful being in the universe, it follows that he's got a lot to give now and it's where the whole thing is headed. Joy is the destination where the whole thing is headed. Zephaniah chapter 3 that we read earlier, guess what the last chapter of Zephaniah is? 3. It looks pretty bad in chapters 1 and 2, but it's headed toward joy and the God who is singing over us. In Hebrews 12, 2, the writer says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. There's something future tense with joy that we can keep going today because we see where the whole thing is headed. So we can bring our data and say, this really is rough. But joy stands before us and say, it's within reach, it's still possible. And would you be open to it this season? Like these shepherds we see in Luke chapter 2. Would you join me there? I'm going to begin in verse 8. Spoiler alert, Jesus was born. And here's what happens next. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Do these words sound familiar to you? How many of you are thinking about Charlie Brown right now? Let me tell you where Charlie Brown got this. Luke chapter 2, now we're in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, anybody want to guess? If, If you've been reading Luke, he said it to Zechariah, he said it to Mary, he said it to Joseph, and now he's saying it to the shepherds. Angels must have been pretty scary, y'all. I think mostly we just probably are doing our jobs and laying in fields and not expecting supernatural heavenly beings to show up, right? Unless you're having that kind of camp out. 
Kids, don't ask your parents about those. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you what? Good news that will cause what? Great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The second big idea that these shepherds will teach us about joy is that joy expands our imagination. We start to believe that heaven can light up our darkness. When these shepherds hear these words, there's a few buzzwords that would have resonated with them that they would have heard before on the local news channels in their day. You see, the emperor at this time was Augustus Caesar. And Augustus Caesar was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Yes, that Julius Caesar, the salad guy, right? (laughs) Augustus Caesar took the strong Republic of Rome and really went next level with it. And he made this Roman Republic an empire. And he thought he was such a big deal that he said, you know what? My dad, Julius Caesar, he was actually divine. And if my dad was divine, what does that make me? The son of God. So when they hear these angels say the son of God, they're thinking, ooh, this doesn't sound like Caesar. Caesar's been walking around saying he's the son of God. And the thing about his big kingdom and empire was that he went around saying I've brought peace to the whole world. So when they hear about peace and justice, they're wondering, huh, this doesn't really look like something Caesar would have put together. Poets were writing about Augustus Caesar, and they called him Savior of the world. All of a sudden, these shepherds are awakened by a great light and a great angel that says, oh, by the way, a Savior has been born. Now they're starting to think, oh, this isn't Caesar at all, is it? These buzzwords, these terms are getting recalibrated and recycled in a way they never imagined possible. This is news worth listening to. But that's not all the words they heard. They heard the city of David. You think shepherds liked David? Shake your head yes. Before David was a king, David was a what? Shepherd. And the city of David is a big deal because the promised king, the real king, the real Lord is going to be born in David's city. The Savior, Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for the anointed one. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And they're all like, this is nuts. But it gets nutsier. God is still expanding their imagination. He says, oh, wait, there's more. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a, did he say manger? All of a sudden, this is sounding more and more unlike any king, any savior, any gospel that they had ever heard on the streets of Palestine in their time. 
Jesus will grow up and tell a parable about a mustard seed. And how his kingdom is like this little small seed that dies and germinates and grows into this great big tree. Jesus is in himself a mustard seed. A baby that's born in a backwoods town in the place where animals slept, not on a throne, but in a manger. And some of you say, yeah, it's Christmas. I see the lights. I've heard this story. But I want you to put yourself into the shoes of these shepherds that are starting to have their minds blown and expanded because this king is already unlike any other king. This king literally started small. And this kingdom movement is going to outlast the great empire that would seek to kill them a century later. If that's not something they would have never imagined, I don't know what is. Now, what about the good news? You see, the good news that Augustus Caesar was going around telling was bad news. Because peace meant surrender and you'll have peace under me or die. And here's the thing about a lot of the gospels then and now. It actually sounds like bad news, to be honest with you. If you ask people on the street, what's the gospel? Probably you'd bump into a few people that say, the gospel, hmm, those Christians, hmm. It may be for them, but it ain't good news for me. Why is that? Oh, because I've been cast out, I've been looked down upon, I've been judged, I've been kicked out, knocked out, dragged out. Well, the thing about good news is that if your good news doesn't cause great joy for all people, then it isn't good news at all. This is the truth. I think too much of what passes for good news and gospel in our world today is not good enough. I think too often we start with bad news about how you're a dirty, rotten sinner and you need Jesus. Let me tell you, you need Jesus. But let me tell you, it's good news because Jesus wants you too. He doesn't just need you, he wants you. And that's good news. And this news that they say is great, causes great joy for all people. And this is what I believe they're getting at when we talk about the gospel, which is a fancy word for good news. Sorry, Becky, let's go back to that slide we were just on. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus is Lord. He's conquered sin, death, and evil through his death and resurrection, and all people are invited to live under God's gracious reign. The reason why Augustus Caesar's news wasn't really good at all was because when you're invited to live under Caesar's good news and his kingdom, you are oppressed. But when you're invited to live under Jesus' kingdom, you're actually liberated. This is an expansion of imagination. This is an expansion of the heart, and it's for all people. I want to be a church that means what we say it's good news for you, and you, and you, and yes, actually you. I think that's when it's truly good news. And if this sounds too good to be true, let me tell you, when Jesus grows up, he starts to tell news to all the kinds of people nobody wanted to talk to. That's because our third big idea is this. Joy expands our boundaries. We start to see outsiders within the reach of God's love. If you wanted to make a big announcement in those days, let me tell you who you did not go to, shepherds 
laying out in the field in the middle of the night? Have we heard the Christmas story so much that we're just numb to this? If you wanted to go like broadcast news to the world, would you go out to West Texas and find some roughnecks in some small 500-person city and say, hey, you'll never believe it, but the king is here. Because shepherds were the blue-collar workers in a small town in the middle of the night, and this is who the angel is sent to tell. If that's not telling us something about this good news for all people, we're not paying attention. He doesn't go to the highways and byways and the palaces and mansions. He goes to a field with some rough and rowdy good old boys that are passed out under the stars and they hear the most earth-shattering announcement to grace their ears for centuries. Joy expands our boundaries and we start to see outsiders within the reach of God's love. If you've been paying attention to the first chapter of Luke, you see that he goes to somebody that's too old to get pregnant, and she's been gossiped about. They go to a priest who's too dense or skeptical to believe that God can actually work in their lives. They go to a girl that's too unmarried, shall we say, to have a baby. And then they go to a husband who's too worried of what other people are going to think. How many of you can show your hands and say, I find myself in that? Are you too old or too gossiped about? Are you too skeptical? Are you too not quite right in society's eyes? Or are you obsessed with being right in society's eyes, maybe like a Joseph? If you're not paying attention to the story thus far, you're going to miss the fact that this news is for you and that God is leaning in and that God is wanting to work in you. If them, then us. God is at work breaking into our midst. You see, God is always working with those who are low on the world's list, but they're high on his list. I wish that American Christianity would really embrace the biblical thread of what's there on every page. A God who has a special disposition for the poor and the broken and the widowed and the forgotten. And in this Christian nation, we've set up so many systems and structures that don't reflect the heart of God in these matters. That's why I want to be a church that is continually rezoning our neighborhood and kicking up the boundaries that Jesus already has done and extend them just far enough so that these people who are excluded and forgotten can be welcomed into the neighborhood of God's kingdom. This is our DNA I remember five years ago when we became the neighborhood church, we prayed a dangerous prayer. God, give us the people that nobody else wants. And what happens when he answers that prayer? He says, you wanted to extend your boundaries? What do you think is someone who's too far out of reach? Let me ask you tonight, who are those people that you're tempted to believe are too far beyond God's reach? I had one of these people in my life, and I remember when this person came and talked to some people close to me about how he wanted nothing to do with the church and Jesus. And this person that I knew was devastated by this news, and she said, what do we do? And I said, well, first, I think we just keep loving them, because what else do you do? I think Jesus loved and grieved for the people that weren't in his inner circle, 
But I think one of the things that we have to do is to stop fixing people. I think when we see people that are outsiders, we might see them as projects when God sees them as people. I think the next thing we do is we pray specific prayers. Y'all, I've thought about this, and I haven't really preached on it or taken it public, so let's just keep it between us. But I wonder if I've been praying too many broad prayers that when they're answered, I'm not even sure or aware of it. Do you get what I'm saying? Oh God, please bless us. And then I just go about my day. What if we said, God, I need you to move in this. Would you in Jesus' name? God, would you keep this person today and give them this in Jesus' name? What if we started praying bold, crazy, specific prayers and see what God does with them? What's a specific prayer you're too scared to pray for the people you think are too far to reach? I think we stop fixing people and keep loving them. I think we pray specific prayers, and then I think we trust that God wants these people, these sheep that have drifted far away from the true shepherd, he wants them and loves them even more than you do and our church does. Which is why we say sometimes in this church, and we need to say it again, you cannot outbelieve God's love. I think it can't be overstated that John, when he could say anything about God, and even earlier when I was talking about God as the most joyful being in the universe, or even in, throughout the Old Testament, that God is holy, what does John in 1 John say about who God is? If he picked one word, God is what? Love. This is earth-shaking, earth-shattering. You cannot outbelieve God's love. It's not an add-on to the God-divinity experience. It is the central core from which all other characteristic flows. Whatever it means to talk about God's anger, he's loving in his anger. And if you've never seen a parent righteously care about the well-being of their beloved, then you can't understand how God can be loving in his anger and jealousy for a person and what's best. But everything that God does and everything that God is flows from the center of love because as Simone Weil, the French philosopher, said a hundred years ago, God is love like an emerald is green. He just is through and through. And if you're his, you cannot outbelieve your belovedness. When Jesus grows up and as a 30-year-old man is baptized and goes public, God says, this is my beloved son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And he hadn't really preached or done that whole lot. And if you're in Jesus, you're within this one whom he loves. And Jesus will later say, the father has loved me the way that I love you. So you cannot outbelieve your belovedness, but keep trying. I want you to dive deep down to the well that is the heights and depths and breadths of God's love, and I want you to keep swimming, and you'll never find the bottom. 
I think this is what transforms our hearts. This is what gives us joy when our circumstances are terrible. I think when we swim in it and try to go deeper and deeper and we say, do you really love me even in this? Can you really be compassionate and have mercy even in this? Can you really continue to draw me closer to you and into life and you keep seeing a resounding yes? Keep swimming. You cannot believe God's love for you, but please do keep trying. Let's look back in our story. These guys are awakened like a defibrillator. Their hearts are bursting. And suddenly in verse 13, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest heaven. Or in other words, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Sound familiar? And on earth, peace to whom? To those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Woo! Did they say that? Probably. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. The fourth big idea about joy and its expansiveness is that joy expands our vision. Not only do we start to see all the little gifts for what they are, God's grace, we'll talk about that in a moment, we begin to see heaven breaking through into our everyday space. They're out there sleeping, they're doing the night shift of their work, and all of a sudden the sky is lit up, and they begin to wonder, is every field within reach of a heavenly choir? Do you think that they slept soundly the next night or did they keep one eye opening open wondering what God might do that night I think joy expands our vision and when our hearts are expanded we start to say I need more of this life and light and love and goodness and the thing about joy when you start to see every little gift for what they are God's grace it's the reason why all the who's can have all their Christmas stuff taken, but it won't steal their joy. Because they realize that I'm still standing, breathing, and I can sing arm in arm with my other who's of Whoville, so it's okay. Joy expands our vision. The manger that we're always talking about and celebrating, understand this. It isn't just a symbol about humility. It's a sign so the shepherds know where they're going. It's a sign, the angel says, so you know I'm not lying and I really mean I've got news for you, you rough and tumble blue collar boys. It's a sign to show them that God's really in this. That's why they say, let's go see if it's true. There are people out there that have experienced something they can't quite put their finger on. And I wonder if God's saying, hey, go check it out with these other people. And what if they wander into our church? What if they wander into your table, your door, your work friend? And they're saying, let's go see if this thing is real. Oh, that we would be little mangers that confirm the reality that God is moving and at work all throughout our neighborhood. And he's sending people to mangers like us to show them it's really not too good to be true. It's not just a symbol of humility. Look at this king. 
It is that, but it's more than that. It's to say, no, there really is something deeper going on here. You've tapped into the creator of the universe, and your expectations for a king are valid. So Mary and Joseph most likely stayed in the ground floor of a guest house. We think of the barn, like on this banner here, that's like set back behind the main house. But what happened is, in typical first century guest houses in those areas, the ground floor would be like a fenced-in courtyard, and that's where you'd park the livestock. And then you'd go upstairs, and that's where the guests would stay. So they probably went to one place, and they said, we have no room upstairs, but you can sleep down here in our yard, in our courtyard, in the front floor, first floor. That's probably what's going on. And so can you imagine the shepherds like we did last year with the posada? Not just as Mary and Joseph looking for a room in the inn, but these crazy shepherds at 2 a.m. walking around looking for the little newborn NICU uh, plastic baby case like you see in the hospital. And the name card is blue and it says Jesus. Back, like, comma, Christ. Right? And so they're going around and they're looking in every one of these courtyards and people are upstairs freaking out. What are these stinky, crazy, rowdy shepherds doing? And they're going on the hunt to see if what God said could really be true because joy had expanded their vision and they're saying, it's really happening in our city? And when they find Mary and Joseph, they realize that the angel was right, that God is really in this. And here's what happens next in verse 16. They hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the major. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things into her expansive, joy-filled heart and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were what? Just as they had been told. The fifth big idea and our final big idea is this. Joy expands our community. We start to draw others because life, love, and joy are contagious. You know it. I hear it every week when we talk together. You got to see this show on Netflix, bro. We were doing it with some people this week. We were telling them about a podcast on Wednesday night with our guys. You got to see it. You got to listen to it. It's contagious. You want to share it. It did something to you. If you've had those tacos at that one place, Loose Stone, if you're listening, we still got to go to Tranky's and get them fish tacos on that place on Jupiter. And I still got to go to your gas station place even though it sounds crazy, but because joy expands our community, we got to do it together. The shepherds couldn't help but tell their friends what they had found. Yes, Mark, fish tacos, man. Have you ever had a fish taco? Then you're coming to Tranky's with me, bro. The shepherds couldn't help but tell their friends about fish, I mean, about Jesus. And here's what's wild that I've only recently thought about. It would be 30 years before Jesus would grow up and call another group of rowdy guys looking for purpose. Like, what do you do a week later if you're a shepherd? Isn't this crazy? 
What do the Magi do after they give their gifts and head back east? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. Their lives were forever marked by what they had experienced in the presence of this child. Joy can do that. If you've ever held a newborn and sensed and caught this whiff of new possibility and newness and goodness, you know it leaves a mark. Maybe this is why. Frederick Beekner said these words, and if you go back and listen to any joy sermon that I've preached in the last five or six years, you've probably heard this quote, it's that good, and Lord willing, I'll use it next Advent. He says, joy is home. God created us in joy and created us for joy. And in the long run, not all the darkness there is in the world and in ourselves can separate us finally from that joy. Because whatever else it means to say that God created us in his image, I think it means that even when we cannot believe in him, even when we feel most spiritually bankrupt and deserted by him, His mark is deep within us. We have God's joy in our blood. What expands your joy and gets your joy blood pumping and your heart growing three sizes larger? Is it this community? Is it God's creation? What contracts your joy? Comparison of what others have or how you perceive others to feel? Is it coveting the stuff? Pay attention and allow joy and the God who is behind it all to expand your heart beyond comparison and coveting to expand your imagination beyond what you think possible, to expand your boundaries to include those who are never truly out of reach, and to expand your vision to see heavenly choirs waiting in the wings, ready to sing over you in your everyday life. And finally, may we be a community expanded by joy, large enough to welcome in those who would come, wondering if it's just too good to be true. And may they hear good news and live good news through Christ our King who has come and is to come again. Amen. May God, the most joyful being in the universe, surprise us with angel songs and light in the darkness. When we are uncertain, may God our heart may God our hearts with peace. Sorry, fill our hearts with peace. When our steps falter, may we be surrounded with the strength of the Spirit. May the one who rejoices over us guide, bless, and keep us until we are face to face with Jesus, the one who was and is and is to come. Go joyfully in God's peace.